Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, where we read you your favorite classics one bite at a time. My name is Brie Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. You'll also find our new t-shirts in the shop, including podcast shirts and quote shirts from your favorite classic novels. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes. But also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show, and YouTube, where we have special behind-the-narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear what inspired your favorite classic authors to write their novels— and what was going on in the world at the time, check out the Bite at a Time books behind the story podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note, while we try to keep the text as close to the original as possible, some words have been changed to honor the marginalized communities who've identified the words as harmful and to stay in alignment with Bite at a Time books' brand values. Today we'll be continuing Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 37 Deeming Sunday the best day for taking Mr. Wimmick's Walworth sentiments, I devoted the next ensuing Sunday afternoon to a pilgrimage to the castle. On arriving before the battlements, I found the Union Jack flying and the drawbridge up. But undeterred by the show of defiance and resistance, I rang at the gate and was admitted in a most pacific manner by the aged. "'My son, sir,' said the old man after securing the drawbridge, rather had it in his mind that you might happen to drop in, and he left word that he would soon be home from his afternoon's walk. He is very regular in his walks, is my son. Very regular in everything, is my son. I nodded at the old gentleman as Wimmick himself might have nodded, and he went in and sat down by the fireside. You made acquaintance with my son, sir, said the old man in his chirping way while he warmed his hands at the blaze. At his office, I expect. I nodded. I've heard that my son is a wonderful hand at his business, sir. I nodded hard. Yes, so they tell me. His business is the law. I nodded harder. Which makes it more surprising in my son, said the old man. For he was not brought up to the law, but to the wine coopering curious to know how the old gentleman stood informed concerning the reputation of Mr. Jaggers, I roared that name at him. He threw me into the greatest confusion by laughing heartily and replying in a very sprightly manner. No, to be sure, you're right. And to this hour, I have not the faintest notion what he meant or what joke he thought I had made. As I could not sit there nodding at him perpetually without making some other attempt to interest him, I shouted at inquiry whether his own calling in life had been the wine-coopering. By dint of straining that term out of myself several times and tapping the old gentleman on the chest to associate it with him, I at last succeeded in making my meaning understood. No, said the old gentleman. The warehousing. The warehousing. First over yonder. He appeared to mean up the chimney, but I believed he intended to refer me to Liverpool. And then in the city of London here. However, having an infirmity. For I'm hard of hearing, sir. I expressed in pantomime the greatest astonishment. Yes, hard of hearing, having that infirmary coming upon me, 
My sonny went into the lawn, he took charge of me, and he by little and little made out this elegant and beautiful property. But returning to what you said, you know, pursued the old man, again laughing heartily. What I say is, not to be sure, you're right. I was modestly wondering whether my utmost ingenuity would have enabled me to say anything that would have amused him half as much as this imaginary pleasantry, when I was startled by a sudden click in the wall on one side of the chimney and the ghostly tumbling open of a little wooden flap with John upon it. The old man, following my eyes, cried with great triumph, "'My son's come home,' and we both went out to the drawbridge. It was worth any money to see Wemmick waving a salute to me from the other side of the moat, when we might have shaken hands across it with the greatest ease. The aged was so delighted to work the drawbridge that I made no offer to assist him, but stood quiet until Wemmick had come across and had presented me to Miss Skiffins, a lady by whom he was accompanied. Miss Skiffins was of a wooden appearance, and was, like her escort, in the post office branch of the service. She might have been some two or three years younger than Wemmick, and I judged her to stand possessed of portable property. The cut of her dress from the waist upward, both before and behind, made her figure very like a boy's kite, and I might have pronounced her gown a little too decidedly orange, and her gloves a little too intensely green, but she seemed to be a good sort of fellow, and showed a high regard for the aged. I was not long in discovering that she was a frequent visitor at the castle, for on our going in, and my complimenting Wemmick on his ingenious contrivance for announcing himself to the aged, he begged me to give my attention for a moment to the other side of the chimney and disappeared. Presently, another click came, and another little door tumbled open with Miss Skiffins on it. Then Miss Skiffins shut up, and John tumbled open. Then Miss Skiffins and John both tumbled open together and finally shut up together. On Wemmick's return from working these mechanical appliances, I expressed the great admiration with which I regarded them, and he said, "'Well, you know they're both pleasant and useful to the aged.' And by George, sir, it's a thing worth mentioning that of all the people who come to this gate, the secret of those pools is only known to the aged Miss Skiffins and me. And Mr. Wemmick made them, added Miss Skiffins, with his own hands out of his own head. While Miss Skiffins was taking off her bonnet, she retained her green gloves during the evening as an outward invisible sign that there was company. Wemmick invited me to take a walk with him round the property and see how the island looked in wintertime. Thinking that he did this to give me an opportunity of taking his walrus sentiments, I seized the opportunity as soon as we were out of the castle. Having thought of the matter with care, I approached my subject as if I had never hinted at it before. I informed Wemmick that I was anxious in behalf of Herbert Pocket, and I told him how we had first met and how we had fought. I glanced at Herbert's home and at his character and at his having no means but such as he was dependent on his father for. Those uncertain and unpunctual. I alluded to the advantages I had derived in my first rawness and ignorance from his society, and I confessed that I feared I had but ill repaid them, and that he might have done better without me and my expectations. Keeping Miss Havisham in the background at a great distance, I still hinted at the possibility of my having competed with him in his prospects, and at the certainty of his possessing a generous soul and being far above any mean distrusts, retaliations, or designs. For all these reasons, I told Wemmick, and because he was my young companion and friend, and I had a great affection for him, I wished my own good fortune to reflect some rays upon him, and therefore I sought advice from Wemmick's experience and knowledge of men and affairs, how I could best try with my resources to help Herbert to some present income, 
save a hundred a year, to keep him in good hope and heart, and gradually to buy him onto some small partnership. I begged Wimmick, in conclusion, to understand that my help must always be rendered without Herbert's knowledge or suspicion, and that there was no one else in the world with whom I could advise. I wound up by laying my hand upon his shoulder and saying, I can't help but confiding in you, though I know it must be troublesome to you, but that is your fault in having ever brought me here. Wimmick was silent for a little while, and then said with a kind of start, well, you know, Mr. Pip, I must tell you one thing. This is devilish good of you. Say you'll help me to be good then, said I. A cod, replied Wimmick, shaking his head. That's not my trade. Nor is this your trading place, said I. You are right, he returned. You hit the nail on the head, Mr. Pip. I'll put on my considering cap, and I think all you want to do may be done by degrees. Skiffins, that's her brother, is an accountant and agent. I'll look him up and go to work for you. I thank you ten thousand times. On the contrary, said he, I thank you, for though we are strictly in our private and personal capacity, still it may be mentioned that there are at Newgate cobwebs about, and it brushes them away. After a little further conversation to the same effect, we returned into the castle, where we found Miss Skiffins preparing tea. The responsible duty of making the toast was delegated to the aged, and that excellent old gentleman was so intent upon it that he seemed to me in some danger of melting his eyes. It was no nominal meal that we were going to make, but a vigorous reality. The aged prepared such a haystack of buttered toast that I could scarcely see him over it as it simmered on an iron stand hooked on the top bar while Miss Skiffins brewed such a germ of tea that the pig in the back premises became strongly excited and repeatedly expressed his desire to participate in the entertainment. The flag had been struck, and the gun had been fired at the right moment of time, and I felt as snugly cut off from the rest of Walworth as if the moat were thirty feet wide by as many deep. Nothing disturbed the tranquility of the castle but the occasional tumbling open of John and Miss Skiffins, which little doors were a prey to some spasmodic infirmity that made me sympathetically uncomfortable until I got used to it. I inferred from the methodical nature of Miss Skiffins' arrangements that she made tea there every Sunday night, and I rather suspected that a classic brooch she wore, representing the profile of an undesirable female with a very straight nose and a very new moon, was a piece of portable property that had been given her by Wimmick. We ate the whole of the toast, and drank tea in proportion, and it was delightful to see how warm and greasy we all got after it. The aged especially might have passed for some clean old chief of a savage tribe just oiled. After a short pause of repose, Miss Skiffins, in the absence of the little servant who, it seemed, retired to the bosom of her family on Sunday afternoons, washed up the tea things in a trifling ladylike amateur manner that comprised none of us. Then she put on her gloves again, and we drew round the fire, and Wimmick said... Now, aged parent, tip us the paper. Wemmick explained to me while the aged got his spectacles out that this was according to custom, and that it gave the old gentleman infinite satisfaction to read the news aloud. I won't offer an apology, said Wemmick, for he isn't capable of many pleasures, are you, aged P? All right, John, all right, returned the old man, seeing himself spoken to. Only tip him a nod every now and then when he looks off his paper, said Wemmick, and he'll be as happy as a king. We're all attention, aged one. All right, John, all right, 
returned the cheerful old man, so busy and so pleased that it really was quite charming. The aged's reading reminded me of the classes at Mr. Wopsle's great aunt's, with the pleasanter peculiarity that it seemed to come through a keyhole. As he wanted the candles close to him, and as he was always on the verge of putting either his head or the newspaper into them, he required as much watching as a powder mill. But Wemmick was equally untiring and gentle in his vigilance, and the aged read on, quite unconscious of his many rescues. Whenever he looked at us, we all expressed the greatest interest and amazement and nodded until he resumed again. As Wemmick and Miss Giffen sat side by side, and as I sat in a shadowy corner, I observed a slow and gradual elongation of Mr. Wemmick's mouth, powerfully suggestive of his slowly and gradually stealing his arm round Miss Giffen's waist. In course of time, I saw his hand appear on the other side of Miss Giffen's. But at that moment, Miss Giffen's neatly stopped him with the green glove, unwound his arm again as if it were an article of dress, and with the greatest deliberation laid it on the table before her. Miss Skiffins's composure while she did this was one of the most remarkable sights I've ever seen, and if I could have thought the act consistent with abstraction of mind, I should have deemed that Miss Skiffins performed it mechanically. By and by, I noticed Wemmick's arm beginning to disappear again, and gradually fading out of view. Shortly afterwards, his mouth began to widen again, after an interval of suspense on my part that was quite enthralling and almost painful, I saw his hand appear on the other side of Miss Giffen's. Instantly, Miss Giffen stopped it with the neatness of a placid boxer, took off that girdle or cestus as before, and laid it on the table. Taking the table to represent the path of virtue, I'm justified in stating that during the whole time of the aged's reading, Wemmick's arm was straying from the path of virtue and being recalled to it by Miss Giffen's. At last, the aged read himself into a light slumber. This was the time for Wimmick to produce a little kettle, a tray of glasses, and a black bottle with a porcelain-topped cork, representing some clerical dignity of a rubicund and social aspect. With the aid of these appliances, we all had something warm to drink, including the aged, who was soon awake again. Miss Skiffins mixed, and I observed that she and Wimmick drank out of one glass, of course, I knew better than to offer to see Miss Giffen's home, and under the circumstances, I thought I had best go first, which I did, taking a cordial leave of the aged and having passed a pleasant evening. Before a week was out, I received a note from Wemmick, dated Walworth, stating that he hoped he had made some advance in that matter appertaining to our private and personal capacities, and that he would be glad if I could come and see him again upon it. So I went out to Walworth again, and yet again... And yet again, and I saw him by appointment in the city several times, but never held any communication with him on the subject in or near Little Britain. The upshot was that we found a worthy young merchant or shipping broker, not long established in business, who wanted intelligent help, and who wanted capital, and who in due course of time and receipt would want a partner. Between him and me, secret articles were signed of which Herbert was the subject, and I paid him half of my 500 pounds down and engaged for my sundry other payments. Some to fall due at certain dates out of my income. Some contingent on my coming into my property. Miss Skiffins's brother conducted the negotiation. Wemmick pervaded it throughout, but never appeared in it. The whole business was so cleverly managed that Herbert had not the least suspicion of my hand being in it. I never shall forget the radiant face with which he came home one afternoon and told me as a mighty piece of news of his having fallen in with one cleriker, the young merchant's name, and of clerikers having shown an extraordinary inclination towards him, and of his belief that the opening had come at last. 
Day by day, as his hopes grew stronger and his face brighter, he must have thought me a more and more affectionate friend, for I had the greatest difficulty in restraining my tears of triumph when I saw him so happy. At length, the thing being done, and he having that day entered Clericker's house, and he having talked to me for a whole evening in a flush of pleasure and success, I did really cry in good earnest when I went to bed to think that my expectations had done some good to somebody. A great event in my life. The turning point of my life now opens on my view, but before I proceed to narrate it, and before I pass on to all the changes it involved, I must give one chapter to Estella. It is not much to give the theme that so long filled my heart. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books today, while we read a bite of one of your favorite classics. Again, my name is Brie Carlisle, and I hope you come back tomorrow for the next bite of Great Expectations. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com and check out the shop. You can check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the rest of the links for our show. We'd love to hear from you on social media as well.